0: session with Dr. Farid
1: Good afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next 2 hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-4410-555 can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, studio number 310-441-0555. So have some book catching up to do. I actually had Dr. Nushin Valizadeh on the show Monday, and we discussed her book, Women, which was the book of the week. But last week, I was unable to do a show on Wednesday to talk about the book from two weeks ago. So I'll talk about that one today. And then the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about next week is If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal by Justin Gregg, What Animal Intelligence Reveals About Human Stupidity. So um, the title is interesting. The cover picture is quite interesting. And uh, looking forward to starting that tonight. And sharing it with you next week. If Nietzsche were a narwhal by Justin Gregg. But the book of the week from two weeks ago that I'm now going to get to talk about today is Between Us by Batya Mesquita, Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions. And this was definitely an eye-opening book for me. I've read several books on emotions and culture, but there was a lot in this book that was new and news to me and also challenge some of the ways uh, I, I didn't realize I had some assumptions about emotions, the universality of emotions and certain types of emotions even though I recognized that the traditional views of some universal emotions were were not quite there nonetheless the book still was was very eye-opening for me and and interesting and I highly recommend you you check it out so how cultures create emotions that's uh, the theme of the book. And so, one major theme that the author, Batya Mesquita talks about is from the Western approach and model of emotions and, and feelings, or emotions in the sense that even the feelings part is, is related to this concept. We have what she calls a mind um, context or mindset. So, mind is an acronym standing for M for mental, meaning that it's something that happens to us. Uh, or it's important that we think about the, the IN inside the person. And then the last one is essentialist. So inside the person means that in the Western context, this might seem like the only way to think about emotions, but we focus on the internal experience of the individual, how they are feeling. That's essentially where we think emotions reside. Um, and then essentialist, that's this aspect of there are some feelings, that are human and universal that we all feel so they're just these universal feelings rather than uh, something about the context so that's the mind model mental inside the person and essentialist but she says how in many non-western societies and cultures there is also an ours model of emotion and that's also an acronym o-u-r-s so that is emotions as outside the person that's the o-u relational, and situated. So the OU outside the person, meaning that it's what's happening between people. We're not so focused on what the internal experience of the individual is. Relational means that emotions are about relationships and how they facilitate, interfere, um, lead to different interactions between people. So it's more about what's going on between people than within the individual and situated meaning that um, they can take different shapes depending on the context. So it's not that there's just one universal emotion that everyone feels and feels the same way. It depends on many, many factors. And so uh, she goes throughout the book looking at different ways that we can see um, these differences and what we might take for granted, even I think I took for granted is, well, this is just how humans feel and how humans respond and what's important about emotions, but then not every culture sees it that way that there's definitely a perspective there and as is always the case when we uh, have a certain mindset a certain perspective we are usually blind to it until we can see it from someone else's view or point of view to even see there was a perspective there there was a value or a judgment or a bias that we had we just assume that's what it is and even actually talks about the movie inside out which i remember seeing when it came out several years ago talking about it on the show and really felt like it did a good job expressing emotions and what they can be like, but that, that this is very much a Western and the mind model, that it's about these feelings inside of us that we have and then they come out. Um, and that's the whole picture when it comes to emotions rather than the hours model, which includes the relationship much more and focused on that. And truth be told, I think it's both of those things. It's not that emotions are only this mind model or only the hours model but recognizing that both are important. And so, uh, as is often the case when we get exposure to different viewpoints, different cultural perspectives, how it can help us is realizing there's more to the picture. And usually it's not either or, or one group, or one philosophy or perspective has the whole picture, but that it's an integration of things. But it is, I think, important for individuals like myself from a Western type of culture and mindset to recognize this bias and seeing things in the mind type of mindset uh, and similarly recognizing the value of the hours perspective and even just having this type of a humility that although I think I understand how emotions work or how someone else is going to feel because this is how I feel that that can be very limiting because not everyone is going to feel things the same way or have the same emotions as we might expect and they might not express them the same way so you might think oh i'm I'm seeing someone do this this means they must be lying or they must be ashamed so they must have done this she shares a story of a student who a teacher accuses of doing something wrong i forgot what the wrongdoing was and the child hangs his head and is feeling down i think he was a turkish student and the western teacher assumes this means he must feel bad that he did the thing that he feels guilty Whereas really what the the student was experiencing was he felt shame that even his teacher would think uh, he would do something like this. So that made him feel bad. So the teacher's interpretation from her own understanding of emotions and how someone would respond or should respond, if let's say they're innocent or guilty, was uh, led to a misunderstanding of how this child was expressing himself. So we can see that if we have some humility there, we recognize that although our starting point is to think what would I feel if I was in that situation or if I was expressing something, what would that mean I was feeling or thinking or the reality. We can have this awareness that oftentimes people can have different experiences, different ways of expressing that are natural for them. There isn't just this one natural way to respond. And so for me that was a bit, uh, even a bitter swill to pill to swallow because I realize there's ways I talk about things on this show and with clients that makes it seem like, this is the right way that, for example, you have to express all your feelings and the internal is so important and you have to, you know, if you're going to feel this, it's good. If you feel this, it's bad. But she shows throughout the book uh, that a lot of those assumptions are exactly that assumptions that are not the same for everyone. Not everyone has those types of experiences and the assumptions of the universality of certain experiences emotionally um, might be misunderstanding or limited in, in seeing others. So. That's a big theme throughout the book. you know. She goes through different things, even something like shame, that was actually quite interesting for me, that in some cultures they promote shame or they try to teach their children to feel shame because it's a way of showing them that what you're doing is not acceptable to the group or to others. And you have to be aware of that even in ways that to us might seem really harsh when she shares some of the, the stories from research or anecdotes. It could seem to me harsh that i would say i wouldn't tell a parent to talk to their child in that way but seeing that for them this was a right emotion and she talks about quote unquote right versus wrong emotions and recognizing that it isn't something universal but it depends on the culture and the context and in some cultures you should feel let's say shame or feel bad about something whereas in another culture that wouldn't be the right feeling to have we, we don't want you let's say in western cultures to feel bad about yourself because we value things like self-esteem and individuality so feeling bad about yourself is not good now of course even when we say they promote shame or they're uh, in, in trying to imprint this shame into their children or to reinforce that feeling that emotion all we have to keep in mind that the theme of the book is that these emotions the ways we translate them the way we describe them are not the same culture to culture so their experience of shame does seem to be different from what we might experience in a western culture because for them it's not that you're going to be ostracized from the group or you're going to be kicked out or you should hide it's that the group is always going to be here and you're always going to be part of the group but this is something that disappoints the group or that we don't like and so you shouldn't do that so there is this difference in that feeling from my perspective that let's say for in the united states if you have that feeling of shame it could be the sense that You are bad. Inherently, something about you makes you not good. You should hide. You should cover yourself because who you are, how you are, whatever it might be, something about you is just so bad. And so she shares how people's experiences of shame or when they talk about shame can be different, for example, someone in the United States versus someone um, in Japan or some other cultures where they might actually value the shame. It might be a good thing to feel. Uh, And that was interesting for me because I've... Thought about working on this one-man show for myself to perform, and one of the main themes is shame and how it's so bad. And so it was interesting for me reading this and seeing how some people—it's not as universal as I thought—that shame would be this negative thing. Um, it, It made me rethink a little bit or added some perspective to that. As I mentioned, I think the big difference is the feeling of shame, where you feel that you're somehow unlovable or not good or won't be accepted or included is very different from we will be here but we don't like what you did and so even calling that shame you know could be coming down to the semantics and what it means in different cultures but we can see that uh, it can mean different things as far as the experience for the individual and then within their relationships so there's uh, you know parts about words and how we use different words not every culture has the same words there are different cultural um Phenomenon, things like hygge, which I talked about recently in Denmark, this feeling of coziness and warmth. And I think it's something we could understand, let's say myself as an American, but it's not some big part of our culture and something we talk about. But for them, it's a very important thing. So we see different groups have different cultural contexts and concepts, and not every group has the same ones. Um, she also talked about emotional acculturation. That was interesting for me that... We see that people feel different things or might react to the same situation with a different emotion profile. Let's say if you're from the native culture, you feel anger and pride in different degrees, then someone who's an immigrant from their culture might feel more or less of, of those emotions. But that children start to acculturate, just like we think about language and other customs. Emotionally, they start to become more similar to the country or the culture that they're now living in. And it takes something like two to three generations for that to happen and that they start to become indistinguishable from the uh, host nation that they are now in or host culture they are now in and I thought that was interesting myself being a child of immigrants and also working with lots of Iranian families who are either immigrants or their children were came as a young age and of course there are generational gaps that will always be there between parents and their kids but we can see this cultural gap that starts to create and it makes sense as the children emotionally acculturate to their new culture their new surroundings but that's gonna make their parents feel like they're losing them or they're feeling so different they can't even feel the same or she talks about uh, kind of like this emotional dance that we have they might be missing steps or can't really dance together in that same rhythmic type of a flow because of that and so I think I see that with parents feeling like they're losing their children but the hard part is that often for the children to function better in the new culture it is important for them to learn this new emotional dance of where they are and so can parents tolerate that and allow that space Um, also what's important she touches on this in the book is sometimes we read about okay cultural understanding cultural sensitivity but it doesn't mean we should assume or think we know someone so now i tell you oh people from japan tend to feel this more have this type of emotions that are different from an American, um, it doesn't mean if you meet someone who's Japanese, you want to tell them, I know this is how you feel, or I know this is how you will respond to something like this. It is something to be aware of. It's kind of like a a tool in your toolkit, but you want to be mindful of that. Uh, We were taught this as therapists as well, that you want to have cultural sensitivity, understand people from different backgrounds, and if they have a different background from you, how that might lead to different responses, different gender roles, different experiences, a whole bunch of different things that it might affect them. But you always want to make sure you're asking the person to understand for them what do these things mean? How do they feel? What's going on, rather than assume, oh, I know you're from this background, so I know this is how you feel about such and such thing. So um, as I mentioned, there was you know parts of it were eye opening and realizing that although I thought I was culturally sensitive and was aware of the role that culture plays in our emotional life or mental life um, there was assumptions I was still holding on to that I was not aware of so this book what was good in challenging that shaking that up and recognizing that I, I tend to come from a mine perspective of emotions and recognizing that there's the hours perspective as well that I think it's not about just different culture I think all of us can learn from it um, and the book gets into lots of different ways that we see these variations and An emotional experience that i think can be quite interesting so i think it's an important book to check out to understand yourself better and and others and how to approach others when it comes to their emotions that was between us by batia mesquita let's go to a commercial break we'll be right back welcome back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
0: Hi there. Um thank you so much for taking my call. Sure, thanks for calling. My my question relates to um what to say to my four almost five-year-old son um that's having a bit of a conflict with his his friends. Okay. Um as, as a background my son went to this amazing preschool. It was actually a Persian immersion preschool. And um because of just the, the circumstances at the time, my son thought moved up a grade so when he was three he he ended up being in a four to five-year-old classroom Mm -hmm. uh, which now looking back was probably a mistake Um, and and then this isn't in in year one he had difficulty making friends and obviously he was a year younger than all the other kids and he was a new kid in year two which was last year he became best friends with the other three boys He was able to connect he had a really great year um, and then we got really close with the families of these boys. And then this coming year, which is year three, all the, all the boys went to a new school for, for mm-hmm. kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And as all, of the, you know, as all the boys got older, they, um, I noticed you know, they tend to be a bit more athletic, a bit more competitive. Um, they, they all have really involved fathers that are getting them interested into sports and they practice with them a lot. Um, unfortunately my husband I think you know he doesn't play a strong role or generally and um, but he also doesn't you know work with my son on sports who probably you know is not very athletic generally um, but my like my, my husband doesn't like practice with him so he doesn't you know he's not getting better and um, my son's very much into like imaginative play mm-hmm. and you know like being you know and he's into like space and just like dressing up and um, you know just you know general imaginative play um, we're, we became very, very close to this other Iranian family, which was very important to me to have this strong Iranian connection in, in America. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we all collectively go to this Persian soccer class uh, just so that we can maintain um, their friendship since they all go to different schools now. But what I noticed more recently was that um, these boys, as they're getting older, are like beginning to kind of gang up on my son and exclude him. Mm. And they're, like, more recently just, like, running away from him, like, after practice and, like, when he wants to hang out with them and, like, play with them. And they, like, more recently also told him, like, they, they don't want to be his friend anymore. Mm. And and what's unique is he, my son does really great one-on-one with each of these boys, but it's, like, when they collectively meet as a group, they they become kind of, like, bullies Um, and it's really weird Uh, and I don't, and I could just tell like when, when it's the three of them or when it's two of them, they gang up on him and, you know, I could just also tell just over time, they're like drifting in their interest. So I took the position more recently that I'm going to pull him out and we're just going to see these families less, even though, you know, it's this Iranian community that I like. I love the parents. Um. My family thinks that we should. I should, you know, keep him in, try to work with him, so we don't lose this Iranian connection. The parents of these other boys see that their sons tend to gang up on my son sometimes, but um, some of them say some some of them are of the mind of like we can't force friendships, and when we force kids to be friends, it like repels them the other way. Other other parents say like let's work on this, um, so that you know their kid won't be a bully. But I kind of don't want to use my son as the guinea pig to help Mm -hmm. the other kid not be a bully. So I'm just wondering, what is a good position for my son? And I know my parents um, listen to your father a lot. I listen to your show a lot. And I I was always of the mind that, you know, for a son, a boy, but maybe, and also probably for girls too, but like, it's so important to build their self-esteem when they're young. And I feel like I made a mistake by allowing him to be moved up a grade because there wasn't room in the other class and I really wanted to get into this Persian immersion school. that mm-hmm. um, I made this mistake because he was always a younger kid. He was always he always felt inadequate because he was you know, a year younger. Yeah. Um, and I, I part of me just feels like the right answer is to pull him out, but we lose this Iranian connection. I, I, I'm just wondering what what should I do? And how do I talk to my son when kids around him have, are telling him he, you know they don't want to be his friend? what should I say what what can I do to help his self-esteem mm-hmm. in that circumstance?
1: Yeah, I mean it, there's obviously a lot going on even at one point I, I had to remember that he was like four going on five because there's like so much history there of what what's happened. Uh, the school part it, it's tough it happens a lot where Uh, students are you know the parents get an option to move their kids up yours it seems like was different but in general I know there's a sense of our our kid is getting ahead and that's good Uh, So this might not be your case but just for parents out there I think the social aspect and being smaller and younger uh, can have an effect that might outweigh any benefit you think they're getting from getting ahead in some way so uh, I guess you were really keen on him being at this school so you you wanted to find a way to make that work now you know, we, all, we can't force friendships. So I do agree with that aspect of things that, uh, you know, children have different interests and, and putting him, you know, when, when you talk about his self esteem and how he feels about himself, uh, a big part of that is that we don't want to feel like we're being put in places we, that people don't want us or they don't make us feel welcome. So to, to force him or to push him to be friends with these kids to me would be um, it's hard to say, let's have him be friends with kids that don't seem to connect with him. And have that make him feel good, you know, so uh, I wouldn't want to put pressure on him or force him or those kids I mean, it's not good if they're bullying him or making him feel bad or saying mean things But if they have different interests now Then it makes sense like it might not be as fun Just like if he wants to play a certain type of game and the kid keeps changing it Your son might not like him, Like no, let's play it this way So uh, I don't think forcing it and this concern of like losing the the Persian connection You know, there's many I, I'm not so concerned if he wouldn't ha- had friends that are not Iranian. That's not. I don't think anything to be at all worried about. Uh, and definitely to pressure it or force it, and and also that it's there's only these children. There's other Iranian children. You know, I don't know where you are exactly, but I'm not so concerned about that part of it. I would I would make that part fairly minor in all of this. Um, actually, in the the previous segment I was talking about cultures and emotions and things like that and we do have the sense that well if her kid is around Iranians and we're Iranians it's going to be so good but um I'm assuming you're in the United States yeah and so I'm I don't see that as something I would put a lot of emphasis on from my perspective that that's going to be significant especially if these kids are not getting along to force it in any way to me is not going to work and at their age it's a little bit different but still you know parents sometimes think they have to resolve their kids conflicts and make it work but we can't make kids want to get along or want to hang out if they don't really enjoy it i don't even know if your son enjoys it other than maybe if he's feeling the rejection or he's been friends with them he wants to still be friends but i don't get the sense he would enjoy these interactions if they're going the way you're describing them so i think the more we put him in situations where he's being rejected that's not gonna help uh, how he feels about himself in any way
0: right I think a lot of it is my son doesn't I, you know like when they're at a playground i'm I'm kind of watching him at the corner of my eye mm-hmm. and and it's it's harder on me than it is on him it looks like um i I'm finding it difficult like I, I think he doesn't mind he doesn't mind it as much when I notice like they're running away from him it doesn't like devastate unless he's like. Okay really great at hiding his feelings right now, which I doubt because he's still so young. Um, It's more, I almost feel like it's more me that's hurt by it. Mm. Um, and, And a combination of like, I put such great importance into like building this community for us so that we have, he has these like, you know, really close friends that are Iranian and we celebrate the Iranian holidays together and we see each other so that, you know, they always have some sort of foundation of there's like, you know, an Iranian family because we're, you know, most of our friends aren't Iranians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like he doesn't notice as much. Only very recently he's told me like, oh, they're like, why are they being mean to me? I don't understand. But like, he's not crying over it. Whereas like, I feel like I'm, I'm crying over it <laughs> because I'm like very close to the families. And I'm, I feel almost like it's like this, you know, this community tries to build for him. Isn't working and it's not good for him and I. I part of it's kind of like I'm let down myself. Well, well, but I don't know if protecting.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. Like, I mean, you're saying you're feeling. Of course, you're going to feel what he feel. Like, you're going to try to understand what he's going through, and you might put your feelings onto him. And then also that last part of like disappointed or you think you're, you know, letting him down in some way where. You know, obviously the biggest part of community is the sense of feeling like we belong. And so if they're not giving him that feeling, then that that isn't a sense of community, even if we think, oh, we are Iranian, they are Iranian. So I would, uh, you know, invite you to try to shift that mindset a bit, that if he's with Iranian kids, somehow it's community or somehow it's good, you know, that that's better than non-Iranian kids for him or something else. I, I think the most important thing is that he gets to feel like he belongs, they like him, in whatever yeah. way that might be. So I'm glad you're saying it's not, it doesn't seem like it's devastating and we're getting so hurt, but he seems to not like it. He's sharing that yeah. with you. Why are they being mean to me? Clearly he doesn't like that. And that's something we can also talk about how you uh, approach those conversations with him. So I know there's this like logistical side of like you're trying to determine changing the school or how connected to be with these families. And that's one thing, but then of course your interactions with him about this are also good to be Quite important and something to look at, but I think you know, yeah, being you're aware of it to a degree that you might be projecting or putting a lot onto this that might be coming from you and not him. But I wouldn't at all think like, oh, you did something wrong, or it's a letdown, or if these families still spend a lot of time together and you're not as involved with them, that somehow you did something wrong or bad. Uh, it's interesting, almost like you might feel rejected in some way, even though it's not that. And so you have to be aware of those things that might come up for you. Um, but I, I think pushing him towards kids that don't want to be around him, I think, is never a good idea for anyone to do in our own lives or to, to do that to our kids.
0: And you know, a question I had it like, I'm wondering how what the right response is to my son when he asks me like, why are they being mean? Like, why is this changing? Why like, why 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 don't they want to be my friend anymore? And mm. and and the, so what what I did was like, I got like very emotional when I saw that. They they had they had said like you don't want to be your friend to him and then he came to me and asked me at the playground like can you ask them why hmm. like what's going on and, and I didn't want to interject as the parent but then I was like okay I'll help him so I walked with him to the you know the playground and I coached the kids and I said like hey guys what's going on oh. and then they all said like we don't like him anymore we don't want to play with mm-hmm. him and then my reaction I got very emotional <laughs> with these like you know five six year olds <laughs> and I just. Took my son and I said okay I didn't know what to say so then I I took my son and I said okay we're gonna leave the playground and my and my luckily my son was like okay and then I I just like made the announcement to like the community area where it was after the soccer practice and I said like we're not going to soccer anymore like this is our last Mm -hmm. day and I basically walked off and I like I was just so I didn't know what to say to the kids I didn't know what to say to my son and then the whole car ride, my son was like, well, "Why don't they want to be my friend?" And I, I honestly didn't know how, what to say to him. Yeah. So I was kind of. And time I like thought of some response, he, later on he said, "Like I don't want to talk about it." So I guess the question was, how, what do you what do you do as a parent in the moment when you see these other kids kind of disrespecting your kid? And then two, how, how do you broach the subject with the child overall mm-hmm. to make sure that like this isn't affect yeah. them?
1: I mean, I, I can get what they said was was hurtful. Uh, I don't know if I would say they even, they fully disrespected. I mean, it sounds bad to say we don't want to be his friend, but you know, kids and people have different preferences of who they want to be yeah. around. Adults, we might not say it that bluntly at times, but we might feel that yeah. way and you know do the same thing. So they didn't necessarily, you know, I, and I'm sure your your feeling uh, in the moment was the big delirium like, bechad when they were saying they don't want to you know be his oh, friend. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm sure you had a lot of emotions that came up for you, and yeah. and you know you made a official like he was being transferred from to a different soccer team like it was some uh, official announcement but you know you were hurt you're feeling for him you're feeling what it's like to be him or imagining uh and then you had you know deal with him What what i'm thinking is we're at a commercial break and i do want to explore so there's two things you brought up one is how to deal with the those families and you know i don't know if anything has happened yet as far as did you actually take him out of that soccer team and the other thing is these conversations with your son which i think are really really important so let's go ahead and put you on hold and we'll talk after the break okay okay We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yes. All right. So uh, before the break, we we're talking about your son, four, almost five, having some issues with some friends that he's had for a little little bit. And then re- I don't know if that was recent, that incident, where you went with him to the other kids?
0: Yeah, it was
1: very recent. Very recent. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then, so did, I was asking, you know, did, you know, and the, the the kids said that they didn't want to be his friend anymore. And of course that, that, that does sound very harsh. I'm sure you, you felt a lot of uh, feelings in that moment. I was
0: devastated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Life. How did he, how did he seem to be like your son in that moment? Did you see how he was reacting to that?
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he, did, he, 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 he's normally a crier, so he didn't cry in that situation, but he like, there was deep sadness in his face. And I think that's yeah. kind of what caused me to over the edge of
1: it. Sure. you got. I mean, you're, you're going to get protective, you know, that yeah. it was hurtful, <laughs> uh, and you were seeing him hurt. And, and as I was saying, as much as I can get that you didn't like it, and it doesn't sound nice, but it would be hard to say the kids said <laughs> something really wrong. I mean, they yeah, maybe no, feel they like weren't. they're not getting along, you know, or they don't connect with him the same way or something. Uh, but anyway, now, I don't know if changing the soccer teams is ne- necessary. Did you change him out of it already?
0: No. I mean, I no, no only because this happened a couple of days ago. Yeah. I to go to that that there's a particular class where it's like more Iranians go mm-hmm. and then there's other classes. So I'm gonna just go to the other one.
1: Okay. Well um yeah I mean I'd also talk to your son about that. I don't know, did you ask him if he wants to switch soccer teams?
0: Well he, I mean he said he doesn't want to be around them if they're mean, but he's sure. still like they're his But be- they were his best friends. So he's like, you know, if they're nice, like I wanna see them and, and what's and, and I had brought it up in my, like, long to too, but, um, like, one-on-one, they're great. Yeah. That's the weird part. It's, like, when they all collectively hang out, they try to compete against each other, so then it's, like, their athletic hmm. abilities becomes the dominant thing. Like, yeah. you know, when they were younger, like, no one was, like, great at soccer, but now, right. like, you know, the three of them are really working hard at soccer, and then my son's, like, is not that great. And that separates them, mm-hmm. and that's where they're. I feel like they're they're bonding by ganging up on my
1: son. Yeah, I mean, it could be, uh, as you're saying, they're they're trying to like prove themselves to each other. And if he's the one that's the least, like you know, skilled or good, he could be the easiest one for them all to feel good about. Being like, oh, we're yeah. better, we're better than him, you know. So maybe he becomes that target as that competitiveness comes out. Um, to kind of put, you know, put it on him. And obviously that's not going to feel good. And we don't want him to be yeah. in that situation. And yeah, so, I mean, your son, uh, it does seem like, you know, when they started being friends, it's, again, they're so young, but they had slightly different interests. And now sports has become more uh, their, the other kids' interests and your son less yeah. so. And so, you know, they're just a little bit different. And so I think it's good for him to still do something like soccer, but we want it to be in a... Um, way that he's not being hurt or you know he's not feeling bad and I don't think he necessarily has to switch to teams you can try still and see how it goes uh, with that Uh, the part about talking to your son you know it's tough it's delicate you obviously have intense feelings about how is he feeling how is it affecting him you don't want him to feel so bad but you want to I'm sure you know have lots of things well tell me first what are the the things you want to convey to him or you have told him, because I could see there being a variety of things that might come up for you of how to talk to him about the situation.
0: Well, what I try to say is, like, so he, like, more... Recently, like, in the soccer games, like, if he missed the goal, they, they would make fun of him. Mm-hmm. And then I, I taught him how to say, like, if they say, like, you suck, or, like, you missed the goal, for him to say, like, so what? So he started saying, so what? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I told him, more more recently that you know um you know if they're they're not being nice then i just said like they're gonna lose out you know on like having a friend as great as you and i try to constantly boost the self-esteem being like i think you're so funny i love being around you these are the reasons why i think you're incredible and then i tell him but i think i said it so many times he kind of zones out It's, (laughs) it's funny because you know i have Iranian parents who probably like never told me why, like, I was incredible. Mm And then I tell my son, like, every day, and it's almost to the point where he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he doesn't doesn't even, it doesn't mean anything to him anymore.
1: And that's Uh, the interesting point that I think you're aware of. It's almost like more for you than for him. In yeah, a- in yeah in multiple ways one is because you didn't get it so there's something you're feeling there and giving him the type of love and validation you you wanted as a child and also because of that you feel like it's missing and you got to keep pushing it on him but i would pay attention to that if he's zoning out It you know that probably means it's not resonating or even landing the way you're hoping it will so yeah. uh it might not it, it could come off empty if it's just repeated you know if someone says you're amazing you're amazing you're amazing it sounds nice but you kind of stop feeling any of like what does that even yeah. mean you know I mean, because, yeah
0: be specific but you know how like in our new generation we're trying to like kind of uplift the kid you know when they, what, what do they say like first thing in the morning you say like you want to tell them that mantra of like i am great i am you know mm-hmm. smart i am this i don't i don't make it do that but i i always the most confident people i've ever known in my life like that are my age their parents always told them how great they were you know and it was i want them to i want my kids to be at a point where like if someone was like i don't want to be your friend that you have so much confidence in yourself that you're like okay that's not a problem like i'm i know i'm great so like Mm -hmm. you're lost that's that's what i I want my and that's kind of effectively what i told my son like you're you're really great and you're funny and i try to be very specific on like what in particular that day made me think like he's great and like a great person and kind and loving and mm-hmm. you know whatnot and I said like you know I told him like you know it's really their loss so you know we don't have to put ourselves in, in that environment um,
1: yeah well and I, I can get that that you know it, I don't know you know the parents and of course it does have an impact as I was mentioning the book I, I talked about today you know in some cultures they don't want their kids to feel the way we do in American culture, like so good about themselves, and but you know that that's its own conversation. But coming back to how your son feels and and what's going on, I I get what you're saying that if someone says they don't want to be his friend, you'd want him to be like, okay, take care, you know, and like just walk yeah. away. But we also can understand he's going to have some feelings about it. Yeah. That uh, even for all of us, you're right. There's something about how we feel our self-esteem, self-worth. That it's not that we won't feel a sting if we get a rejection it's how much it affects us so no one likes to get rejected just like we do like to get accepted or validated no matter what it's just how much do those things bring us up and down you know so um being aware of giving him that space that You can get that if these kids or it happens another time in any other way say something like that we don't want to be your friend or we don't like you or whatever that we validate and empathize with his feelings so we don't just expect him to feel nothing and only feel good and have such self esteem that he walks away being like oh those you know I feel bad for them that they don't get to be my friend I mean that'd be nice but probably not realistic so making sure you also empathize with his sadness in this situation, of what what is he asking him, what he's feeling? Uh, I could feel a bit of because you're so concerned of what he's feeling and what he's going to conclude, trying to tell him what to feel and think about yeah. what's going on. So leaving space for him to share with you what he's going through. And,
0: and what if he says he doesn't want to talk about it?
1: That's okay. I mean, it would give him some space. Um, I, I can understand that it's going to create some anxiety for you. If he has he said that to you? Yeah. Okay. So now, like car, yeah.
0: Yeah, in the car right after I like when I gathered my socks I I I said how did you I brought it up and I was like how did you feel about that like when they said that and then he just kept saying I don't want to talk about it and then now a couple of days have elapsed and I don't want to be like Hey, remember when like your best friends all told you that they don't like you? How did you feel about that? I I don't want to bring it up again.
1: (laughs) Well, but I I wouldn't want you to avoid it. I get what you're saying. You're not like, oh, let's, you know, if he's having a, if he's in an okay or good mood, I don't want to bring up this painful memory. You know, I mean, obviously if anyone tells us they don't want to talk about it, we want to give them respect. And we might even say something that, you know, we want to respect that. And then, but anytime they do want to talk about it, we're here. We want to talk about it. I, I would also want you to be aware of, you know, the, the, the scenario you described was probably pretty overwhelming for him. And so he could be feeling a lot of things like himself. He could be feeling, oh, I made mommy feel bad because she got upset. Even though you were doing it in defense of him, he might think he's the cause, like I hurt mommy or I made mommy angry or upset because it was about me. So that's something to be aware of. And in general, you know, I work with kids that they'll say, oh, my teacher was being mean to me or a kid was being mean to me. And then I ask them if they told their parents, and sometimes they say no, because I'm afraid my mom or dad's gonna come to school and create a huge scene. And like it becomes, you know, so we have to be aware in general, when we respond to our kids, that we contain our emotions and our response to a degree that makes them feel comfortable. Because if it then becomes, let's say you, you know, you didn't, but if you had yelled at the kids, he's like, oh, I'm never gonna tell my mom if someone says something, because like, I don't want to deal with that, right? So um, when you got into the car, A lot of things could have been going on but he could have been feeling a bit overwhelmed and not sure you know what to say or feeling like you were probably still you said you had collected your thoughts at that point but he maybe saw you were still upset or you seemed upset about it so it it makes it hard for him and that's another part of when we you know talk about empathizing and, and allowing him to express his feelings is being mindful of how emotional you are about whatever is going on to give him that space because if you're still riled up about it it doesn't give him the space of, okay, like I can share whatever I want to, whatever it is, whether it's he's angry, he's sad, he's mad, he wants to cry, whatever that might be. So I, I wouldn't want you to shy away. I get it. You don't want to bring him down, um, but to bring it up in a very calm way or, you know,
0: yeah.
1: you know, wanted to talk about that. Other, and I'm sure. Whatever the schedule is, it's going to come up again where he's going to have either soccer practice or, that you know, that's going to come up again. So it'll be coming up. And so it's probably better to have that conversation now before, like, the day of where it's like, okay, which one do you want to go to? Or, you know, then it could feel like pressure of making a decision. So I think it could be worth opening it up in a calm way, checking your feelings beforehand uh, when you bring it up, really making it clear that you just want to hear from him. And, you know, not even saying too much because that can yeah. almost feel like pressure. Like, you can say anything, don't worry. Like, you know, sometimes we put too much pressure on the whole thing, but just giving yeah. him that space because I'm sure he has his feelings and that's going to be most important in understanding what's going on for him. Maybe he says, you know, I didn't like this, but I want to go back. Or maybe he's like, yeah, I don't want to go back there. And, we, you know, we just explore with him whatever he's going through about, about yeah. the situation. That's
0: helpful. I and mean, can I, and I'm kind of tangentially related, but sure. since he's not, you know, since he's a boy, I feel like. I've noticed that these boys, lot, lots of boys, bond through like athletic endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think, are you guys of the mind that like it's important for, you know, a young boy to just play a variety of sports and see if one, one of them to, like catches his eye and he has like an interest in it? Like kind of force him to do the first practice of everything? Well, to see, he yeah. Like
1: it? I'm not a big fan of the, the word force, but I think, force. but I, I think, you know, and, and for me, it's not about, um, Male, female type of a thing I think in general We want to expose our children To a variety of activities And seeing what they like And find interest in Um, Yeah, I think it's good Physical activities Obviously good for everyone Just from a health perspective And our bodies Are one aspect of our experience And even intelligence And different things And it could bring up You know team and collaboration even the winning and losing it could be painful but it could be good like I think there's a lot of great I I love sports myself but it's not this thing I think well he's a boy he has to play something and we have to find the thing he likes I wouldn't want you to have that mindset I'd be open to encouraging him to try things without this feeling of pressure that it's some big deal Um, you know people are also different some people don't have the competitive Aspect as much as others, you know, I had like a I remember I think it was like my cousin when she was little She just wanted to go hug the other players like during the soccer game and not like and we could say oh That's not good She should try to kick the ball or do something But that was just kind of how she was And I wouldn't want her to think she couldn't be that or do that So I would be mindful of things now the way you even said force I wonder if in general he's it's hard for him to try new things and so There is something that it's not to say just ask your kid if they say no you don't even bring it up again because some children need some more encouragement to try something new so i don't know if your son is like that but some yeah
0: both kids were he's really bad at transitions yeah wherever he is in the moment he thinks it's the best Mm -hmm. and then when you kind of like you have to actually force him to do something else go somewhere else because he just refuses and when you when he's at that next place he's like this is amazing you know like (laughs) He always likes it. Like, he never wanted to go to the soccer class, and then when we first
1: started, then then he liked, started liking it a lot. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, so he is someone that will need, we have to be mindful of when you bring something up, he's likely going to say no first because it's something yeah. new. It's I mean, And so it's not to say we force him, but we also don't just take that no as like, okay, that's it, we're not even going to think about it. We might encourage him or see if he can somehow support it to make it easier for him to get into that first one. And as I was saying, I wouldn't just think, We have to get him to sport because he's a boy. I think it's good for him to try different, you know, uh, interests or activities. I don't know if when you mentioned space, you meant like he spaces out or if he actually likes, like, outer space. Oh, no, he likes outer space. Oh, okay, great. I mean, you also find him, why not find him ways to, you know, do that clubs or groups or, you know, whatever it might be that uh, it's something he's already interested in. Give him that, that space intended to go explore that and then he meets kids that are also more you know have a similar interest that might be good for him too so it doesn't mean he doesn't do any sports but i would want you to cultivate the the interest he does have and give him that opportunity to be like oh yeah i get to learn more about this meet other kids who like space and and all that stuff i think that that would be good for him too okay
0: well this is very helpful thank you sure very
1: much. nice talking to you wish you the best You as well.
0: thank take you take care
1: all right let's go to another commercial break we'll be right back Welcome back, studio number 3104410555, let's go to another caller, Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
2: Hi, Dr. Faye. Hi, um, thanks thank for calling. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Mm-hmm. I know you're busy, so I'm not going
1: to Well, um, I- I'm, I'm busy do doing you. this talking to you, so that's that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just wanted to congratulate you on and the whole people that were involved in such a great success that you guys had on Radio Hamra celebration. I oh, truly you. and honestly wish I could be there.
1: Oh, well, but, yeah. but we had a, it was a fun night. It's always a lot of, a lot goes into it. Um, but, but it's a fun celebration. But thank you for that. I appreciate it.
2: No problem. Um, so as I was on hold, I kind of switched the question around. I think this is more important. Um, so I have a senior who is applying for colleges now. Mm-hmm. And she is showing interest on neuroscience. Okay. As far as Carla's applications go, she's aligning um, her applications um, in the order uh, of the um, colleges that are in the states that actually, um, I think, they're strong in that field. And I just wanted to ask your opinion about that, because mostly they're out of state, so the um, tuitions are... Sometimes even tripled, even for one semester. And I wanted to see um, if this is really a component that we should focus on or think about this being just grad school and um, like undergrad. And, you know, she can go to in state and even, you know, experience what neuroscience that she had truly in her mind. Is it what she really wants to do or not? And then think about. You know grad school and then focus on that once Hmm. she get her
1: feet wet well you know I'm very happy to talk to you about this although I have to acknowledge my my limitation that as far as you know I'm not some kind of a college counselor advisor and especially in the field of neuroscience read many books in the field but as far as academic paths and what's important what's not it's not something that I can say I know how let's say important it is the undergrad that she goes and the neuroscience program they have versus other things. I mean, in general, it can make an impact, but often it is more important the graduate school you go to for any kind of a field that can be important. Um, I don't know the financial disparity between one school to the next, and then also your financial situation of how much it would affect things. I would definitely give her the space to apply to the schools she wants to apply to and then see where she gets in and then make the decision in the spring or wherever whenever it would be so that's some months away and i wouldn't discourage her from looking into the schools that she thinks she would like and then you know even if you do the visits and do all those kinds of things uh i I wouldn't want you to interfere with that process what's your concern is it the financial is it you don't want her to move away what's what is it that you're concerned about
2: um, not so much of a concern, and if she wants to move away, it's something that um all of us did at some point of our lives. Mm-hmm. I'm not concerned at all about that because um she's gonna go first year at a dorm and then I'm sure she can find her way uh, she has um i'm I have confidence on her she's very independent, and um she can find a way of you know arranging things and kind of taking care of herself basically mm-hmm. and we're going to be there here in the States with them anyways um, I just didn't know if bending, um that much more would make sense that was my question and the reason I'm asking you um, I know that you know it's different from you know what um, you know a college counselor would tell us Mm
0: -hmm. um,
2: because I just know that you guys are in the field and you may have, you know, have an idea of because somebody who has gone to psychology um, field and everything, it really matters in the first four years of college or not.
1: I mean, it it is going to be different also. I mean, I I went to graduate school in a different path she would have to go to a very if she wants to be a neuroscientist research-based school in a university and I didn't actually do that for my graduate school so the paths are different I understand that it seems similar psychology neuropsych uh, neuroscience there's definitely overlap Um, I you know even these things when you say like how much and does it is it worth this it, it is going to be something that you have to make a decision or really she will also the Like the financial if the difference is so much you have to tell me how that's going to impact you and the family I, I'm more in the favor of letting her go to the school She wants to as long as it's feasible for the family and whether or not makes that much of a difference to give her that choice to pick her uh, College or the university that she goes to I don't see any reason why you or I should make that decision for her if she really studies says oh I love that this professor is there and you know she does this neuroscience research I think it's so interesting now will she even get to work with that professor maybe maybe not but I I wouldn't want you to discourage her from going to the school of her choice Um, I'm sure it'll have some impact how much I don't know what really is going to happen is that it depends on how she performs at school and and the research she's going to do and all the things she does in her undergrad uh, but where she goes will have some impact, and I'd want her to to be the decision-maker there. So uh, I wouldn't say, oh, it doesn't matter at all, so have her go wherever else. Um, and, and I would also invite her to reach out to people. You know, um, when I was, you know, it was more when I was in undergrad, but I got to meet with people who are psychologists, and they gave me some feedback as to what's important, what matters, what to do, not to do. And so can she reach out to some people who are in the neuropsych Uh, neuroscience industry um, and see if she can get any feedback from any of them. It might be hard as a, you know, as uh, someone who's not in college and to reach out to professors she knows, but however she can do it, that might be something to, uh, for her to do. And I would encourage her to do that again, making it about her figuring it out rather than, you know, me definitely, or you figuring it out for her. So she can see, okay, how important is it? And they might give her some feedback about even what's a good path to take. And look, people change their minds. She might not want even to go into neuroscience at some point. But nonetheless, I'd want to encourage her more. It's about the process of it, of making the decision, evaluating the options, and then at the end making a choice that she feels good about more than I think the decision itself is going to be so monumental in making or breaking her career, you know?
2: Got it. Um. Thank you for that. Sure. So my second question, um, I know um, I listen to your father a lot every day, (laughs) night, days, you know, (laughs) midday, everything. Um, And he talks about instant gratification Mm -hmm. and how some people, and I hear some people call, you know, they are, you know, in high level of academic, you know, um, point of their life they still say okay I'm a procrastinator I can't really be on a, a specific plan on finishing everything and I feel like um, she has been going on the same way somehow she's been managing it somehow she's uh, impacted us um, of course you know in some ways and I to be honest with you I have to be honest with myself, I don't like it at all. I don't even know um, if it matters that we like it or we don't like it, but I just wanted to see how at this point anyone can help any other person of managing their time more efficiently and not be the last minute for literally every single thing all the time in their life.
1: Well, so uh, to begin with, as human or any kind of animal, instant gratification is part of our experience that and some of it is good it's not all bad of course what you i think are talking about is when we turn towards the instant gratification when we need to do something else or it's going to be better for us to do something that has a delayed gratification but we sometimes talk about these things in such a black and white way that instant gratification is all bad of course not we have to enjoy life enjoy the moment even financially yes it's important to save but you also should spend your money and enjoy it while you can as well and it's finding that balance so really balance is is the key with all of these things um so I'm not sure what you see in her I guess you're saying she stresses out because of it or maybe something concerns you but tell me what do you see in her and this is the same daughter that's applying to colleges yeah okay so what do you see um, that concerns you
2: Yeah, the fact that everything that needs to be done is being done at the very last moment. Mm -hmm. I remember her having, like, music assignments, and she had to, like, send a file out to her teacher, and it was due um, that day, and she would just literally send it out at Mm 11.55. Like, five minutes later, it would have been, you know, overdue. Yeah. And deadline would have been missed or um, we had an incident just right now that my husband had to literally go and do something because the printer didn't work. (laughs) The form that she wanted to submit somewhere and the printer wasn't working. Things that I tried to tell her, like you need to be ahead of things and kind of think about unexpected. Just in case those happen, you need to be prepared. You know, the example of your father always saying, if I have 100... I'm sure he told you so many times, 200 pages book. I try to finish it in five days, and I don't push the 20 pages of the book that I wanted to finish to the last day. Then the night before, I would have 80 pages to go versus Mm -hmm. just 20 at the end, or even finish it a day before, things like that.
1: I mean, look, those are all good things, obviously, to finish everyone. We all know, oh, you know, it's good to finish your homework and then play. As an adult, it's good to get your work done early and all those things are true. But it doesn't mean because they're true or make sense. I doubt your. if you ask your daughter, she thinks, you know, it's really, really good to do it last minute is the best way. She probably knows what you're saying from a logical perspective and would agree with you. Now, getting it done is where we have a problem. So I wouldn't focus so much on, let's say, like the lecturing or the convincing of this is the right way. Uh, more we want to understand what's going on for her because usually procrastination comes down to a few things such as anxiety is a big one that drives it. Um, It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as work ethic and things but when I see people who are procrastinating when you go deeper you see there's something like perfectionism, they're afraid to do it wrong, they're afraid they won't know how to do it, they're afraid of not doing a good job, Uh, all sorts of things come into play. So I would encourage you to, rather than focusing on convincing her that procrastinating is bad, which she likely already agrees with, I would encourage you to focus on trying to, if you want to help her, understanding that for herself. So I don't think she doesn't know that procrastinating is not going to help her. I'm sure she's actually going through a lot of stress in these moments when she's you know, doing it at the last minute. Um, so it's good to start from a place of, like, okay, where do we agree, which I think is we agree that this isn't going well and you don't need to emphasize that but if you do want to help her and that's even if she invites you to have a conversation with her about this is trying to understand what goes on for her um is she a high achiever in general
2: um you know we have a life coach actually Mm -hmm. and she was talking about life coach a whole lot when it was pandemic and there was not much going on uh and from her point of view, she's very laid back, mm-hmm. very laid back, <laughs> and I even mentioned this last minute thing, and she told me, just let it be. <laughs> if it's done, it's done. It doesn't matter how it's done. <laughs>
1: are, are you <laughs> saying the life coach is laid back?
2: No. No, my daughter is. Oh, okay, okay. From her point of view, the life coach was saying she's just laid back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's laid back. You okay. Know? You know, and I think, I just didn't know... It's honestly a lot of times irritating because she's still living here, and we are involved in a whole lot of functions that they do. Um, And that was just my thought because we had another incident today. I just thought, oh, maybe I just call and Mm -hmm.
1: ask. Sure. So I mean, this you know, the laid back attitude you're talking about. Some obviously laid back can be good, but I think your feeling is like you don't think she cares enough or has enough passion or motivation about certain things and um you know she's saying she wants to be a neuroscientist that's obviously going to take a lot of hard work and so what we i hope happens is she recognizes if she wants this goal she will approach things differently now you might think she's laid back but she might think she's okay i get the sense you have some high expectations for her and how you're talking about her and how you talk about things in general that you put a lot of pressure on things that's my sense of how i could see you being with her that she should not procrastinate she should do it this way so a lot of the should might be part of your experience and the way you talk to her about things but we can't force someone to get motivated or passionate you know that comes from within we can talk to them about things or expose them even with the last caller this came up of exposing let's say a child to different activities or interests but we can't say okay and you have to really get into this one or really like you know dive deep into this uh, sport or this activity some of that has to come from them so I think you feel like she's not motivated enough now one thing is it depends on what we're talking about and I know at this point with applications and things you might feel like the stakes are high but sometimes we also enable someone to keep procrastinating because we save the day for them so that's something to be mindful of for you and your husband and how you deal with her that sometimes we let her face the consequences of not doing the thing on time so sometimes she does it last minute and gets it done sometimes she might not and we have to allow her to face that experience to, to recognize the consequences of of what happens for her to to feel it herself to then possibly try to do something about it got it
2: got it yeah very good advice. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I'll listen to this with my husband when we get a chance together.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and best of luck to your daughter. You know, Thank a you. lot of kids when they get to college, they start to shift the way they focus. It becomes more about them. Um, as I said, you can talk to her about what it's like for her, but don't think you have to convince her to change. Like you know how she is with these things.
0: No,
2: we resigned parenthood long time ago. <laughs> Just like your, your father always advised, nice. yeah. resigned.
1: That's okay. It. Yeah, she'll figure she'll figure her way out, uh, and I wish her the so best much. too. Nice talking Thank to you. Thank
2: you. I appreciate talking to you. My Have pleasure. Great. Take
1: care. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. back you know i uh, wanted to see if there was time today and now might be a good time to share a, a personal experience i had recently um i had a few weeks ago a therapist on the show on ahita Kashefi who is a uh, therapist who practices ketamine assisted therapy or ketamine assisted psychotherapy and so um i had been curious to have an experience myself um doing that and i did Uh, over this past weekend. And so uh, it was quite an experience, a very um, meaningful one. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it in recent shows, I've discussed alternative treatments or what are considered alternative treatments because they might not be in the mainstream or there's other treatments we might be more used to or accustomed to or have heard more about, Uh, but that there are other options out there other than what we often might think of as let's say treatments for depression so of course you hear depression and if you think of medication it makes sense for you to go to antidepressants it's in the name it's gonna help with your depression and it can help many people but also it doesn't help many people and so to think of that as the only possible treatment uh, along with psychotherapy would be limiting even things like ECT electroconvulsive therapy what sometimes would be called shock therapy Uh, It's had a bad reputation because of things like uh, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest and the ways it used to be done where patients could break bones or have really bad reactions afterwards, Uh, but it's become much more or less invasive and done in ways that are easier on the, the patient going through it and can be very helpful for some. And it's not something I'd say, go try that as a first line treatment, but being aware if you have... Your, uh, you know, what we could call tris- treatment resistant depression to be open to other options, even something like that, which might seem extreme. And then there's TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is an even less invasive way of doing that, where they're just uh, t- like magnets attached to the scalp um, that then do a similar type of a thing. So there are these other treatments out there. And, you know, ECT, similar to psychedelics, has had a bad reputation from media and to the way it's been presented. And the same thing is true of various drugs, psychedelics, uh, ketamine would be close to those, but also things like uh, psilocybin, mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, and other types of uh, medications like that, um, where there was a very, very bad reputation, which was not necessarily reflective of the reality, but part of a history that we can understand that there was... um, Lots of research being done on psychedelics for a long time, 50s, 60s, and then there was this huge movement led by people like Timothy Leary at Harvard that then led to huge backlashes because it was becoming almost too widespread and also became part of counterculture and a whole bunch of things. I'd recommend you watch either the documentaries um, on Netflix by Michael Paul and How to Change Your Mind or for a more thorough. Understanding, read his book with that same title, How to Change Your Mind. He goes through the history of psychedelics and how they fe- fell out of favor considerably, but how they're coming back in recent decades. And it's not to say that they're for everyone and that I'm saying you should try that yourself or that you definitely should try that. There's nothing that helps everybody. But it's being aware that there are these alternatives out there. There are things that we want to just be aware of what can work for you since not everything works for everyone we want to have different options to find something that can work for us and so my own experience um, just even with the concept of psychedelics was like many people's that I was just like oh they're these crazy hard drugs and they can permanently damage your brain and have such negative effects and it's super super extreme worse than any other kind of drugs that people might take recreationally and that was because of the propaganda the things that were out there about these medications when i was in my phd program i don't remember hearing anything about psychedelics and i graduated about uh, 11 years ago and so at that time i think it was much less in the academic mainstream the way that it is now and you hear it's much more common to hear people talking about psychedelic and psychedelics in all types of circles much more accepted much more widespread as a something to try and also people knowing about research and things related to that. So I I was very against it for a long time. And when I started to hear more about it, it was like, oh, come on, like, it's just people kind of wanting an excuse to to do a drug, basically, or, or, you know, to get high in in some way. And I really looked at it negatively. But then, um, you know, that title of that book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, I think it has two meanings. One is that psychedelics can change your mind and and lead to some changes, but also um, it could change your mind. The book, about how you see psychedelics themselves. And I had that experience when I was reading it, that it was opening my eyes more and more, um, that there could be something here, that my assumptions about these types of drugs, medications might not be the full picture, the full story. And so uh, I started to read more, learn more, um, but trying them myself, I recognized there was a reluctance that felt a bit scary for multiple reasons, including some of those Uh, same things I said about what I'd heard about them or what I thought to be um, true about them that made it a little bit scary. Also, full disclosure, I I hadn't really done any kind of mind-altering substance. I mean, if you don't include caffeine, something I take every day. Uh, Other than that, I really hadn't done anything. So uh, there was something about losing control, about um, what happens, what is it going to feel like, how long it lasts, what will it be, you know all those types of things that I had. And so, the way I experienced it um, this weekend, and how I knew I would want to do it, is in a very controlled type of setting, or very uh, comforting setting. And, And in that book, Michael Pollan talks about how many researchers in the field of psychedelics talk about two important concepts, which are set and setting. So that's the mindset of the individual going into taking the psychedelic medicine, and then the setting, the context that they are in. So uh, as I'm talking about psychedelics here, I'm definitely not encouraging it, one, for everyone, definitely not. And that's something to be mindful about. Even for some people, it could be not good for them. But two, to not just take it any way recreationally yourself, that I would recommend that if you're considering it, to do your research, to, to think about it, to talk to people about it. and And if you decide to do it, if you get to that point, to do it in a way where it's with a trained practitioner in the right type of a setting. You know, some people will take shrooms and walk around Joshua Tree, and maybe they, some of them have great experiences, but you can also have what, what they'll call a bad trip, where you might get to a bad place, and if there aren't the people around you to support you through it, it can be an uncomfortable uh, experience. So um, I knew that that's something that would be important for me, and so I'll tell you a bit about what I experienced when I had uh, Anahita Kashefi on the show. We talked about it because uh, I wanted to demystify it a bit and have and also learn from her, but to demystify it because I think sometimes we hear about, for example, going on a psychedelic journey, and that could sound like something super intense or scary or something that you know um, might be might freak us out. So what I went through was after getting meeting with a psychiatrist to to screen me to make sure i was okay to try the medication um i then met with the therapist and we had something like a and and also say this not everyone's gonna have the same uh protocol as i went through i'm sure there's some level of variability of what you might experience but this is what i went through and many i think um therapists have similar types of, of setups. So uh, we, we essentially had something like a therapy session before exploring different things I'm going through dealing with. Also what I'm hoping to get from uh, the, the session itself and some things that I thought I might want to work on or think about and all of that. So it was kind of like a, a pretty standard therapy session as far as length also. And then I took the medication, which in the way I did it was in a lozenge form. There's many different means of administration from injection, uh, IV to intramuscular, uh, to nasal spray, to uh, what I did was a lozenge, which I had to keep in, you know, dissolved in my mouth, but keep the saliva in my mouth for about 15 minutes because it gets absorbed through the cheek. Um, And so there's differences about the bioavailability or how much you get of the medication, depending on how you do it. From my understanding, intravenous is the most direct and most controlled that you know how much you're getting for example if you spray it in your nose uh, the you know what's going on with the mucus lining of your you know nasal passageway various things can affect how much of the medication gets into your body and of course that's going to affect what you experience so nonetheless I did it through a oral lozenge and then after that 15 minutes spit out whatever was left and then I went through this experience and it was it was intense um, I also did not take a very high dose because it was my first experience and I think that was good. And and I had some pretty intense moments. You know, I don't want to share every part of it. it obviously, it was very personal, but I was definitely crying for some parts of it. Uh, first, physically, I felt some things that were a bit scary for me. As I mentioned, I haven't taken something mind-altering in that way. So it was a little bit unclear. I actually uh, did say I, I, I was lucid enough to recognize what I was saying was kind of funny. I, I told the therapist I, I can't tell if this feels good or bad, and she kind of laughed, which I understood because it was like kind of well, wh- what does it feel like? And I couldn't quite tell. It was a little bit strange for me. Um, but then you know I had some some realiza- realizations about myself. Um, some thoughts came. Some connections I did make. Uh, some feelings and then the intense part didn't last that long for me where it was very intense Uh, but then for a while there was uh, music also I should say I was laying on a couch with a a blanket and on pillows so I was very physically comfortable and that felt nice and very comforting and warm Um, I had uh, like a blind, not I shouldn't say blindfold sounds like I was being kidnapped. It was like a eye cover um, so that it was, I wasn't seeing anything other than just, I could just kind of reflect within myself and music was playing. So I had these kind of like noise canceling headphones that she had given me to hear music that she had been picking for me to listen to, to kind of guide or help me through uh, the journey. And so, yeah, I was, I was, that experience was about I think an hour or so of me Experiencing and then slowly coming out, and you know, near the end of it, it was mostly just I was enjoying the music and feeling really nice. And then afterwards, we processed another type of like a therapy session for I think maybe 30, 40 minutes of what it was like, what things came up for me. And the therapist was very comforting, uh, supportive, and even throughout when I was going through the journey, although I was again having this eye cover and this. the the headphones on so i couldn't really see or hear anything outside of my own experience she was there and and let me know and i did talk to her a few times and there was you know comfort of knowing she was there that even if i didn't need her which i really didn't there were some moments it felt nice to just communicate um to have that comfort was very important that helped me feel calm enough to go through the process and then it, it finished and i you know after that Processing for 30-40 minutes, then I went for a little walk and you know went through my day, uh, or it was at night at that time. And all in all, it was a wonderful experience for me that I'm glad I went through. Uh, As I said, there were some connections and insights I made. I wouldn't say it changed me completely. I I say that because I know sometimes we think something's just going to change our whole life and perspective 100% and really almost nothing will do that, but it could be pretty uh, significant. I felt like this was meaningful. For me, not only that we shouldn't think of these, any kind of medication as a cure, meaning that you just take it and now you feel better or you change everything in your mind and all that, but it can help you think a bit differently. So this kind of title again of the book, How to Change Your Mind, it can help you to change your mind. Uh, As you've heard me mention so many times discussing neuroscience that the brain is a predicting machine we're constantly predicting even what we're going to see we might think right now i'm I'm looking and whatever i'm taking in is all what is hitting my retina but we know that there's bottom up but also top down things are happening ways that my brain is uh, already predicting what it's going to see and even filling up or filling in some of the gaps and so from an emotional perspective from a relational perspective We are constantly, without our awareness, making predictions, which overall can serve us because we can't think about and process everything and every piece of information and every decision, every moment. That's really not possible. And this is why I say that our unconscious, even though we sometimes think of it as this dark thing, but it's really something that allows us to function day to day in so many ways. Um, But... As much as these predictions can serve us most of the time and overall they also can make us rigid in certain ways that we feel certain things that we think certain things self-limiting beliefs about ourselves, about other people about relationships about so many things that we don't even realize we're making these predictions because they're so automatic and we feel them so deeply that it just seems like reality but we recognize that reality is a little bit more malleable than we think where it's not some just real complete thing out there that we can only experience it one way it's much more complex than that and so psychedelic medication can be helpful for people to open up the possibility of thinking different and so it's like it helps you stretch but then you have to do the exercise to build the new muscles so it might make you more flexible but it doesn't mean you've now changed completely you have to do some work and so we did the processing before and afterwards and she encouraged me to continue to to process and do some things but um, you know those old pathways are quite strong and so if we don't do the work we more than likely will go to that old way it's kind of like when you change your posture if you want to change your posture it's tough because if you don't think about it you go back back to that old way of slouching or holding your shoulders a certain way you have to keep reminding yourself creating new types of pathways of how we think or feel is is similar so um, I'm excited to continue processing and going through this journey. I might even do a few more sessions in the same way to to, to make the impact more significant. But I, I, I thought about sharing this or not. Of course, there's some level of vulnerability and openness in sharing an experience like this, even in the vague details that I gave. But I wondered about that. I thought, you know, I want to share it, not to say that everyone else should go do it too. As I said, it's not for everyone. It's something you have to deeply consider but just to to make it part of the conversation part of the way we think about things that being aware of these things as options as possibilities uh, and also to recognize we might have our judgments about certain things like psychedelics and certain medications whereas with other medications because they've been accepted in mainstream culture we've thought of them a different way but sometimes these are just assumptions or biases that we hold not some kind of uh, actual reality that they reflect so i wanted to share with you that experience i had over the weekend all right let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back welcome back you know in the previous segment i was talking about my own experience this past weekend doing a ketamine assisted uh, psychotherapy session um, I-, I think i'm still processing it. it was only you know three days ago a- and i mentioned something about um, changing beliefs changing mindsets And how impactful that can be and how automatic it is and it's so automatic that we don't realize we even have them so even if you hear me talk right now you might think I don't have there's not assumptions I just see the world as it is or I see people as they are but we don't recognize how much we have created the world that we experience so there's some kind of a co-creation of what's happening on the outside and what's happening on the inside we're not just passive observers of what's going on around us and I also mentioned that in some ways this is good you have to have some of this you can't function when you're walking you can't think of how is every leg muscle moving in each step a lot of it has to become automatic for you to be able to even do it at all and especially to be able to do it and do anything else to walk and talk and chew gum or whatever it is you want to do we have to have a lot of things become automatic so it's not to say that all of that is bad we need some of that but where we want to be become aware of these things is how, when they start to limit us, which we all have things like self-limiting beliefs. And even as I say that, I can think of it as self-limiting doesn't just mean that they're beliefs about ourselves, but they are beliefs that limit how we experience life. So it could even be about other people. It can be about the world. It could be about so many things, assumptions that we have, for example, we all have a feeling about and a judgment about how other people are, how much can you trust them? You aren't aware of it because you just think it's how it is. I see people as they are, or I uh, judge people as they are, or assume the right amount of risk when it comes to meeting people. But people have a different range in how much they think, for example, when you meet someone new that they're going to be a good person or that I can trust them. And we can obviously be on both ends of the spectrum in an unhealthy way sometimes we can be too trusting and we get ourselves hurt because we don't realize there can be some danger just like you know if you have such a positive feeling you just walk into the street and thinking nothing can happen to you that's not good but of course we can also be in another extreme where we are too wary and paranoid of everyone that we think they're bad people and they're going to hurt us in some way and this is going to be affected by as everything some nature and nurture some level of our genetics but also your experiences How people have treated you, of course, how your parents treated you, but also how they talked about people. I often see in therapy clients who say, my parents told me, don't trust anyone outside of the family. Everyone out there is bad. Even if they act like they're good, they're bad and they're trying to get you in some way. And so, of course, if you've been told that and shown that in a variety of ways without realizing it, you just have an automatic assumption about people that they're bad. You know what, even when they're good, watch out. They're just trying to trick you. So even when they're good, it's bad. So we have different ways of looking at the world and looking at people that we don't even realize we have. It's just like that old story of the two fish in the water. And one of them asks, you know, the other fish, how's the water? And the other one says, well, what's water? Because they don't even realize they're in water, just how they live life. And so we don't realize that mentally we have this kind of water that is filtering and coloring everything we experience and it helps us in some ways, but it limits us as well. The analogy I sometimes think of is if you lived in a family or in a home where there was fire, right? So there's always smoke. And if you lived in this kind of home to survive, you had to crouch around or you walked with your head kind of held low just to survive because you didn't want to inhale the smoke. But now you live in outside of that home and there isn't smoke in your house, but you still walk that way. And that's what happens to all of us. As children, we grow up in a certain home and we learn to survive in that home. But then now when we're no longer there and we don't need to necessarily follow those rules or limit ourselves in those ways, we still function in that way without realizing. So if we were taught not to trust people and we got hurt by certain people, now we think everyone is not trustworthy and we better be very, very careful. We shouldn't even get that close to anyone and the people we're closest to can hurt us. In the book I, I talked about to start the show, Between Us by Batya Mesquita, it actually talked about in some cultures this is considered something positive. And so it's striking me as I talk about that, that of course I have my own cultural assumptions. So it, it's a very meta thing that I'm talking about our assumptions, but in talking about our assumptions, I have my own assumptions too. And I'm trying to be aware of that, but it, it, we could see how hard it is to tease all of that apart. Uh, But coming back to this notion of of our assumptions and how they affect us, the hard part is even wanting to, to look at them, to recognize we are having these assumptions. It's a lot easier to hold on to our old beliefs than to challenge them, because once we challenge them, we can feel a bit disoriented. So this goes back to why it is important to actually have so many things be automatic, because if every moment you had to look at everything totally fresh 100%, it would be overwhelming. You would be sensorily in, in every type of way overwhelmed and just not be able to process all of it. So even when we try to change our mind, I don't think it's good for all of it to change all at once. That would be too much. We wouldn't be able to even function. But it is being first open to recognizing, you know what, there's many assumptions I hold about the world. Some actually probably serve me and might even be good and fairly accurate, but some might be limiting and might be hurting me. And actually bringing it back to the the concept of the book, I do think it's so important for us to be culturally aware and sensitive that although we have our certain mindset about things... If another culture feels differently about things it doesn't mean that we are moral and they're immoral or we're smart and they're dumb or we care about the right things and they care about the wrong things all of the which happens to us when you, you find out in this culture they do this you might think oh that's kind of weird why do they care about that that doesn't even matter but to them there's something you care about that they might think why do they care about that why does that even matter uh, it reminds me of some anthropologist was uh, you know in some other culture and they didn't keep track of, I think it was like last names or who was the parent of who. And to this white anthropologist was so shocking. Well, you don't know who's father and mother of which child or who's the father of what child. They said, no. And then the anthropologist said, well, how do you know which children to love or to you know take care of? And the, to that person who was laughable, we take care of all the children. Like, what, what do you mean which children to love? Right. So to the Western person, it was this mindset of we take care of our family and that person, but to this person it was we take care of everyone. I don't think of should I show love to this child or that child based on if I'm related to them or not, I just take care of and, and love the children. So we can see that we have assumptions that we don't even realize we have and we tend to think the things we believe, the things we feel, those are the important things because they feel important to us. It's, it's hard to not recognize that or to see that. I care about this, so it must be important. Why do you care about that? And so this happens culturally, it happens individually. You know, you meet someone, they say, oh, why do you care what, about that? I don't care about that. Well, whatever it is you're talking about, there's something, or whoever it is you're talking about, there's something you probably care about that they don't care about. So just being aware of that, that you have differences, but it doesn't mean one of you is right or wrong, can be very important. Now, I do think this is important to have this cultural humility, intellectual humility, that other people have different experiences. I do also think that it doesn't mean whatever a culture believes or whatever the cultural, emotional, let's say, profile and impacts are, should just be accepted as they are. And it's always tough. We, I think it's something we shouldn't impose on other people. But even cultures themselves, I think, can look at that and so we see this even I'm proud of my father I think he's done this in the Iranian culture that we try to recognize and understand our culture and recognize first that it's not perfect and something that because we always did it this way it has to be good or because this is some custom it should never be changed we try to understand it and sometimes we see that we say okay in this culture because they live in this type of a society they have to value this thing or that thing which we might not care about so if they're more, let's say, collectivistic, they might care about who's doing what to whom and how they interact with each other. In a more individualistic culture, they're going to be less caring about the each other and more caring about themselves and their experience. So I think we want to understand where it's coming from within ourselves, just like I'm talking about personally, but at a cultural level, I don't think it means that everything is sacred and we can't evaluate it, because often we are no longer in that context, like I was saying about an individual growing up in a house that has smoke, we might not be living in uh, a culture that, um, you know, we're living in that same society where those values came about. And so we might not have to hold on to them, especially if what I think is important to look at is how is it affecting us, whoever the us is, how are people being impacted? How are people being treated? For example, there are many cultures that might have certain values that are anti-women or that create discrimination where women have less rights, less power less ability to do things and now again it's difficult when we go into some other culture and tell them you have to stop this because um, they might have different values and different things that we have to be mindful of but when we look within ourselves we can look at that okay we've given women less power because traditionally and in our past these things were happening whatever those things were in that context that led to those things but we might not be living in that world anymore do we still need to hold on to those values and beliefs and biases maybe not maybe we can move away from that so i think there's some kind of a balance where we do recognize and have sensitivity to other cultures and that they might be different from yours which doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong and you're right it could be the other way around even you can learn something from them But I also think we want to be mindful of just like from an individual level, family level, whatever the level is that we don't just take things as sacred and the sense that, well, it's how we always did things. So there must be some reason. Yeah, there must there might be a reason, but the reason might not exist anymore. So if we, you know, we're very afraid of how much, uh, you know. Uh, let's say, of some resource we we used because of something and we stole it from each other because of that and it was okay, we might be like, well, now we don't have that same scarcity. We don't have to, to function in that way and make that part of our culture. So I think it, it goes on at any level, from the individual level to a family level to whatever group you're in, that we try to understand why we are the way we are but also be open and have that humility that maybe it isn't the best way and we can find something better. Just because it's a cultural custom doesn't mean it has to always stay. Cultures also evolve and we do see that happening just like languages evolve or change. I should say, I think uh, in the book I read um, recently made that distinction that languages change, not evolve. But things can change over time. It doesn't mean they stay the same. And so individually we Hopefully, we'll look at, well, what are the things I've assumed to be true about life, about myself? Uh, There are some self-limiting beliefs we all tend to have that I can't do this. I could never try this or I'm not good at this. And it's good to know ourselves. And there's some things we might not be good at or we might have a hard time with. But almost anyone I've ever met has self-limiting beliefs that aren't true that they think they can't do something, they think they aren't worthy of something, they think they can't experience something, but it turns out that was just an assumption. And often those assumptions, they don't make us feel fulfilled, but they keep us safe. If I'm afraid to get hurt in my career, it's easier for me to think I can't do something. And this is actually why when I work with people in therapy, I often find that people don't wanna know what their dreams are and what they want to do. Because they'd rather not know because then they have to risk making them happen. They'd rather not even know they dream of changing careers or they dream of doing this thing or that thing because now they're faced with that pressure of now I know and either I don't do it and that feels bad or I have to start doing it and that's a bit scary. And so I hope we'll embrace some of that discomfort at all levels that we want to understand ourselves and especially with others respect them and try to understand them and have that humility that my way isn't necessarily the right way but to also be open to change to challenging things to seeing are the ways we view things are the practices we have the customs the values are they still serving us are we still in that environment where we have to see things and do things in that way all right that brings us to the end of today's show A big thank you to Batis here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Drilakwi. Be kind and take risks. Have a wonderful day.